We are in uh, still in Romans chapter 9. And uh, last week, we kind of went back and talked some more about things that we talked about the previous week in verses uh, 17 and 18. Uh, and got a little bit into verses 19 and 20, but we just began to touch on those. And uh, today I'd like to pick that up beginning primarily in verse 19 and, and uh, Lord willing, trying to get down through about verse 24. But as I said last week, there's a ton of material in there, so we'll just have to see how, uh, how much uh, we can get covered. Um, so, uh, by way of review, let's go back and... Uh, Let's pick it up with verse 14 and read on down through uh, verse uh, 24. uh, And then we'll do some review and go on from there. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires." You will then say, uh, say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom He also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." Okay, as I said last week, we were we were kind of talking about verses 17, 18, 19, 20 in that area. Uh, so, can you remember some of the things we talked about last week? What are some of the things that stick in your mind? Actually, one of the things we're going to discover, it begins kind of there and then he develops it more as we go, is really a dominant theme of chapters 9, 10, 11 is the mercy of God. That really is where Paul is going. So by the time uh, we get to the end of chapter 11, that's going to be the, the, the real climax that God 
has shut up all under sin in order that He might show mercy to all. So mercy is really kind of the theme. And oftentimes these verses we read them, these passages we read them, and we, for one reason or another, we tend to read them from kind of a negative, you know, God chooses and, you know, we don't have any choice in the matter and, and things just happen and it's kind of a fatalistic, determinist way of looking at things. But, but really the emphasis here is on the mercy of God and that's an exciting thing to be thinking about. I think we struggle with this um, in our mind fairness, you know, justice, you know, but we don't see the money. And God really knows true justice. Yeah. And I think that when you question Joe, here we are. <laughs> yeah. But I think when he's been merciful to me, even though I'm scared to be for a season, you know, we yeah. just don't know, but God sees the heart. Yeah. He's true justice. Yeah. Good point. I mean, the, one of the two things, out of the last minute, Sarah was like, well, no, you've had your whole life. Yeah, you've had your chance. But yeah, yeah. Great. What else? Yeah, her. It is not as though God did not extend this mercy to Pharaoh. He did extend it to Pharaoh and all his people. And in fact, when the, when the Israelites came out, they came out with many Egyptians as a mixed multitude. Yeah, yeah that's true. We want to believe, we want to go along from the rock. Yeah. And God said, now you've got to stay behind. Yeah. No, God said, okay. You can go. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a great point. We, we of course, we, we talked a lot about Rahab and how Rahab threw her lot in with Israel, but that's a great point. There were a number of Egyptians that threw in their lot with, with Israel too. And so that's a, that's a great point. Good. What else? Remember we talked about some, in, some important things we need, we need to know or need to remember about this idea of hardening because it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And uh, so, uh, so we talked about actually kind of three main things or main things that I thought it was important for us to remember about hardening. Do you remember what any of that was about? It can be undone. Okay, hardening is not irrevocable. As we look at, at various examples in Scripture of individuals who were hardened or situations where God speaks of hardening people or giving people over to their sin, it's, it's not irrevocable. Anybody can repent. They can, they can confess their sins and they can repent and, and receive mercy from God. So that's an important thing we need to remember that hardening is not irrevocable. What else? Remember we talked about hardening has purposes. What were the two purposes that we saw that hardening has? What's the, what's the first purpose that we see? Like in the case of uh, in Romans chapter 1, we talked about hardening there in Romans chapter 1. And what is, what is, that, what is the purpose of the hardening there in Romans chapter 1? Okay, but what is the purpose? <laughs> what is the purpose? Remember, he says there in Romans 1, 24, uh, I think it's 24, 26, and 28, in each one of those cases, people had rejected God's revelation, and so he what? He 
gave them over. Okay? And then it says, then they went on in their sin. And so then again in verse 26, He gave them over. And then they go on in their sin. And so in verse 28, once again, God gives them over. There's that progressive hardening that takes place in verses 24, 26, and 28 of Romans 1. And so we see that hardening has a judicial aspect to it. it God uses it uh, as, as punishment or discipline one, uh, one way or the other. He uses it in a judicial aspect because of man's hardening, man's recalcitrance, man's refusal to recognize the revelation of God and, and, and believe the revelation of God. So it is judicial, but in the case of Pharaoh, uh, and the way that God used Pharaoh and hardened Pharaoh, it also had another purpose. And what was that? Word salvific. salvific, that's right. Okay. Or having to do with... Uh, do with the digestive system. <laughs> having, to do, having to do with salvation. Okay. So that, so that God's hardening in the case of Pharaoh was designed in order to have the effect of declaring the name of Jehovah throughout the whole world. And so we see in the story of Rahab, we see an example of how the hardening of Pharaoh served to have a saving effect in the life of Rahab and her family. Okay? So hardening has this twofold purpose. And, uh, and we need to keep that in mind. So when we see hardening taking place, and even when we see that it's God that's hardening, as He does in the case of Pharaoh in places, where it's a case of God hardening, it's not that God is just hardening because He just likes to make people miserable and send people to hell. He hardens people in order that through providentially through their life and through their situation, He might have a saving effect on others and sometimes even on that person. So, for example, in Romans chapter 1, the hardening in Romans chapter 1 is intended to bring people to salvation. And also in Romans chapter 2, God's hardening of people and His patience as He waits, as their hearts grow harder and harder, His purpose is even in the heart of the person, or even in the life of the person who is being hardened, oftentimes the hardening has a salvific purpose. Okay? Herb. The two ideas are not disconnected and that will come out again incidentally that same idea that Herb was just mentioning comes out at the end of chapter 11 when Paul reaches that great climax at the end of chapter 11 which we'll get to it, where he says that he has shut up all under sin in order that he might what? show mercy to all there at the end of Romans chapter 11 so indeed uh, uh, the, 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 those two things are woven together and oftentimes very difficult to distinguish one from the other okay uh, what else do you remember we talked about last week? In the, in the question that's asked, and we'll get more into this, 
uh, in the question or the objection that is raised in verse 19 where he says, why then does he still find fault for who resists his will? We just began to touch on those verses last week, but, but I mentioned to you, what is, what is the underlying premise of that question or that objection that is raised in verse 19 about why does God find fault or how does God find fault since no one resists his will? What's the underlying premise uh, that's foundational to that question? Gary. Okay, okay. So implicit, yeah, implicit in that is the idea that you cannot have human responsibility without human freedom. Okay. You must have freedom to have responsibility. And and Christians wrestle with that issue and uh, depending on kind of where they're coming from theologically, they wrestle with that issue. But but most Christians, even uh, uh, both both Calvinist and non-Calvinist Christians, recognize that you cannot have just judgment without human freedom. Okay, so that's an underlying premise. That's what kind of what we call a brute fact. That's just something we instinctively recognize that somebody cannot be cannot be held accountable for doing something unless there was some freedom to choose to do that or to do otherwise. Okay. And uh, like I said, that people approach that differently and they wrestle with how they define freedom differently. And, uh, and I don't want to take time to go into those uh, fine, uh, fine definitions of freedom uh, uh, at this point. But, but the underlying premise of the question is, how can I be held accountable or responsible? How can God find fault with me if it's impossible for me to resist his will? Okay. Uh, what else? Anything else that we talked about last week that you that you want to bring up? There's one other thing I want to bring up, just just to remind you uh, that in the verses that we began looking at last week, beginning verse 19, and and that we're going to look at more today, Paul is emphatically asserting. God's freedom to choose whom he will show mercy to and whom he will not. Okay? That he that God has that freedom because he is God and he is sovereign. Because he is God, he has that freedom. And Paul is emphatically asserting that God has freedom. And so that is what these immediate verses in Romans 9 are about. What they are not about and what Paul does not discuss in these immediate verses, but he will discuss later, is how God makes that choice. How God makes that decision. Okay? So what, so what we're going to learn is that God can choose. That, that's His prerogative as God. But Paul is not addressing yet the question of how does God go about, you know, what, what, the, what, what does God use to make that decision? What information or what, 
what uh, data, shall we say, does God use to make that decision? And so some people read this verse and because they don't see in these verses how God chooses, they conclude we cannot know how God chooses. So God just has this choice up there. He's free to choose. And, 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 and so he just chooses. And we really have no clue why he chooses to show mercy on one and not on another. These verses aren't addressing that. So if we just stop right here, we would throw up our hands and say, well, I just don't know how God chooses. But fortunately, the passage doesn't stop with these verses and it goes on to the end of chapter 9 and into chapter 10 and into chapter 11. And Paul makes it very clear how Paul makes or how God makes those choices. And we get to understand that. So that's one thing to keep in mind that right now we're just discussing that God has this freedom, not how God exercises that freedom. Okay, so keep that in mind. So, picking up then kind of from where we left off last week, beginning in verse uh, 19, he says, you will then say to uh, you will then, uh, say to me, then why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, old man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? For does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Uh, so, Paul is once again uh, kind of putting this, this imaginary interlo- uh, interlocutor out here, this imaginary opponent, this imaginary debating partner, if you will, which he's done all the way through Romans, right? All the way through Romans, Paul will make some points and he'll, he'll, make, uh, he'll, he'll explain some of, uh, of the gospel or something about the gospel or whatever. And then he kind of anticipates an objection that somebody might have. And he kind of puts this imaginary debater out here who debates with him and says, well, if you say this, then what about this? Is God really just if he does this? And, that? and so he has this imaginary debater or imaginary opponent out here. Okay. And he's been doing this all the way through Romans. And of course, he's doing it again here. He kind of just throws this question out as someone who would say to him, well, how does he, how does he still find fault if no one can resist his will? Now, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is even though, or should make this point first, even though this, this opponent out here is imaginary in one sense, it's not somebody specifically who is actually literally responding to Paul. He writes the letter and then the person's writing a letter back. But Paul is, Paul is anticipating that some might have these objections. And Paul is doing this because in the course of his ministry, he has had many that have opposed him. And they have raised these objections and they've raised these questions to the things that he has, uh, to the things that he has said. Uh, Ronnie has this quote. I can't, I can't ever remember the whole quote, but he talks about how uh, speaking makes you a certain kind of man and writing makes you a certain kind of man and and uh, uh, study makes you a certain kind of man. Speaking makes you a certain kind of man. And, and, and writing makes you a certain kind of man. And, uh, and the, 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 the last one I like, he says, writing makes you an exact man. 
Okay, and the reason exact, uh, writing makes you an exact man is because as you write things down and then people read the things you write, it's all written down and they can pick it apart. Okay, and they can go, okay, down and they can find that, you know, and so you learn as you write and people respond to your writing, you learn to be more and more careful about how you say things. I stand up here and talk, you know, I'm just kind of shooting off the cuff a lot. I've got notes here, but as you notice, I don't very often look at them, you know. And I'm just going on, and so it's possible for me to say things, which, you know, in the heat of the moment, it's easy for me to say, but, but, and it just kind of goes by and nobody notices. But if I write it down and you're reading what I say, then you're much more, oh, okay, he said this, but is this really the way it should be said, or is this really, and so, yes, sir. There you go. Yeah. So, so Paul has learned through the course of his ministry, through all his preaching and writing and everything, he's learned to be very precise and he's learned to anticipate what people are thinking. So he has these opponents at it. Now, throughout Romans, this this imaginary opponent that Paul has put out there to interact with has always been a Jew. It's always been Jews. Because that's part of the issue he's dealing with in Rome, right? He's dealing with this problem of the Roman church that started out as a predominantly Jewish church and then the Jews were evicted from Rome and it became a predominantly Gentile church and then the Jews were allowed to come back, but by now it was a predominantly Gentile church with a strong Jewish influence in it. And there's this tension then between the Gentiles and the Jews. So this is part of the issue that Paul is addressing. We talked about all this in our introductory to Romans, right? So, so Paul, as he creates this imaginary opponent out here to interact with, he's really thinking, there are some Jews in Rome who are wrestling with these questions. Okay. But typically, typically this imaginary opponent that he's got out there, it's not just a Jew, it's not just that he's a Jew, but that he's typically a Jew who has some degree of antipathy towards what Paul is trying to communicate. He doesn't, he's not inclined to believe it. He's not inclined to receive it. So he tends to, he tends to argue with Paul. So it tends to be this kind of argument. Well, your God isn't just then. Or how can your God do this? And, and, and so he's, it's, it's, there's kind of an anticipated antagonism, which I'm sure Paul experienced many times in his ministry, right? So this, this imaginary opponent that we encounter here in verse 19 then, we, we, we know some things about him, even though he's imaginary. In Paul's mind, this person is someone who has antipathy towards the gospel. He's not inclined to receive the gospel. He is, in fact, one of those recalcitrant Jews who wants to go his own way, wants to do his own thing, wants to live according to the traditions and, 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 uh, and all the rote of Judaism and, and, and quarrels with, with any objection that God might have to how they have chosen to live and carry out uh, their religion and their life. Okay? And, and so they are like the people, the Jews, many of the Jews that Jesus encountered. They're just not interested in following God, not, not following the true God of, of Scripture. And so as Paul preaches about this God and what this God is like, he encounters these people who don't want anything to do with that God. So the opponent that Paul is 
creating force here and that we in, that we encounter in verse 19 is not an honest seeker after God. The question that's asked here is not a question that's asked by someone who is seriously trying to understand how God can justly judge people when he has in fact uh, has this prerogative to harden whom he will and to have mercy on him. This is not someone who is, a, who is an honest seeker. This is in fact a Jew who rejects Paul's God, Paul's Gospel, and Christ as Messiah. And this is the quarrel. And we know this because in the next verse, Paul does not answer as you would typically answer someone who is a legitimate, sincere seeker who's really trying to understand the God that Paul preaches. But Paul's response in verse 20 is, on the contrary, who are you, man, who answers back to God? You notice how Paul characterizes the question of verse 19. The question that's asked in nine, two questions actually that are asked in 19, how can he still find fault for who resists his will? They are posed as questions, but how does Paul characterize them when he describes them in verse 20? He says, who are you, O man, who what? Answers back to God. Okay? See? So this is not someone who's really struggling with the question of how can God be just given what you've just said, Paul, about God hardening some and having mercy. This is someone who is answering back to God. What he's saying is, God, you can't do this. Pardon? It's an accusation against God. Precisely. And so Paul's response needs to be understood in that light. He's not responding to an honest seeker who really is struggling to try and figure out these issues of free will and determinism, if you will. That's not what Paul is answering. Paul is answering here the accusation against God that God is unjust. Okay, And so he, he responds in the way that he does. And that explains a lot about Paul's response because you'll notice that Paul's response is not, uh, you know, well, let me help you understand this, you know, type of response. He really doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the questions. I don't know if you noticed that or not because I read those verses and I go, okay, I'd like an answer to that. But he doesn't answer it. He just blasts this guy for answering back to God. That's the kind of response you give to someone who you know is really unwilling to learn. Okay? So I'm reminded of the two verses in Proverbs that are always kind of a paradox to us where the writer of Proverbs says, don't answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. And I go, okay, so don't answer a fool. And then you read the next verse. And the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly lest he be wise in his own eyes. And I go, okay, which is it? Do I answer him or I don't answer him? Well, the point of the Proverbs is you, when, when you're answering a fool, you don't you don't answer them like their question is is a legitimate question. You answer them as their question deserves, 
because they're speaking as a fool. And that's how you answer them. Lest they be wise in their own eyes. That's what Paul is doing here. He's answering a fool as his folly deserves. Okay? And so, hence, Paul's answer. You were going to raise a point there, Herb? Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, this person's world, the right view is, he still sees God as the great celestial fault finder. Instead of, this is a Jew that has a picture of God as the great celestial fault finder. But as a Jew, he knows that God created the world in love and that God has come to Israel and Judah again and again as a loving father. Yeah. To give them the law, to bear with them 40 years in the wilderness, to send them prophets, to put up with all the God in the book of Judges and all the long suffering and patience of God and this guy has the merity to see this loving God our Father yeah. not his Father but his heavenly celestial Father yeah exactly yeah. and you know we know people like that don't <laughs> yeah we do we do and so that explains then what seems to be on Paul's part a very harsh answer who are you, O oh man? And notice he emphasizes his humanity. Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? Okay. And so what Paul is now going to assert, and he's going to draw up this analogy that runs throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, this analogy of the potter and the clay, and he's going to draw this up to demonstrate that Paul or that, that God, because he is God, has the sovereign right to choose whomever he wants to have mercy on and to choose whomever he wants to harden. Okay? So, that's the nature of Paul's response. Uh, it's kind of mirrors to his response kind of harks back to God's response to Job. Yes, it does. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of similarity there. Okay? There is a lot of similarity there. Uh, uh, Along this line of just a little bit more on 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 the on the person, even though he's imaginary in one sense, the person that Paul is answering here is you'll notice the person uses the phrase he says says who resists his will. It's an interesting word to use, isn't it? It's clearly not a word that someone would use who really is interested in honoring and loving and obeying God. It's, it's rather the attitude of someone who wants to walk their own way regardless of what God wants. Okay? And so it's somebody who wants to resist the will of God. Uh, now, think for a minute about the essence of this person's objection. So I'm going to quit calling it a question because, as we said, it's not really questions. It's, they're really objections. They're objections to the points that Paul, Paul is making. And, uh, and so they are accusations against God. They are objections to Paul's gospel. Okay? And, and, the, and the real essence of the objection is God is in no place to judiciously harden the Jews. Because that's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with this question of, remember, all the way back to the early Romans chapter 9, he's dealing with the question, is God faithful to his word to the Jews? That's the question he's wrestling with. 
going to wrestle with it all the way through 9, 10, 11. Has God failed? Has God's word failed in reference to what his intention and his purposes and his promises were for Israel? That's the question he's dealing with. And so now we have this guy who comes along and this guy says, God is in no place to set the Jews aside. In Romans chapter 11, he's going to use the analogy of the, of the tree and the branches and he's going to talk about them having been broken off. Right? He's going to talk about how the Jews were broken off. And this, what this person is saying, as a Jew, he's not arguing with God's right to judge the pagans. The Jews felt had no problem with God judging the pagans. What they objected to was God judging them. Okay? And so... So, what this guy is saying, this imaginary opponent of Paul's is saying, who is really, in Paul's mind, certainly some people he's thinking of that he's encountered in his ministry. What this person is saying is, God is in no place to judiciously harden Israel. Because that's what Paul's going to argue. Paul's going to argue that just like Pharaoh was hardened, in order that God's name might be published throughout the whole world, so Israel has been hardened in order that the Gentiles might be saved. That's going to be his argument, okay? I, I always hate to do this. I, when, I'm, when I'm teaching, I always like to follow the logic and not get ahead and not anticipate where the logic is going. But in this passage, oftentimes we need to stop and think, where is Paul going with his argument? And where Paul is going with his argument is that God has done what He's done with the Jews in order that He might bring the Gentiles in. Right? So that's where he's going. And this Jew is saying, you can't do that, God. You are not in a place to judiciously... Remember, we saw there were two ways, two reasons for harden. One of them is judicial. And he's saying, you are in no place to judicially harden Israel. So, to do so, he's saying would make God unjust. And you can't do that. So, what he's really saying, is what he's really saying is, God, you've got to allow us to do what we want to do because you're in no place to judge us. We can just live any way we want to live and you're in no place to judge us. Now, you might say, well, is that really what he's saying? Well, what's interesting is when Paul then goes on in verse uh, 21, and he, or in verse, uh, excuse me, verse 20, he says, On the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable? And he brings up this idea of the potter, and he brings up the idea that the potter has the right to make of the clay whatever he wants to make, and the clay can't stand there and go, you can't do this to me. Right? So this is, you know, we're going to talk in depth about this analogy of the potter and the clay in a minute. But my point is, what this question or accusation or objection of verse 19 is saying, is it's saying, God, you cannot judge us. You are no place to judge us because you've put us in this place. 
And you're in no place to judge us. And the question is, is that in fact what the Jews were thinking? And that is in fact what the Jews were thinking. Because clear back in Isaiah, on at least two occasions, Isaiah uses this analogy of the potter and the clay. In Isaiah chapter uh, 45 and Isaiah chapter uh, 29, twice he makes this analogy and, and he talks about Israel and, and he says, uh, he says, Israel is saying to God, basically, you don't have the right to do this or, or, or you don't have authority over us. Let's look at the two verses which are most commentators seem to think are the ones that, although Paul does not quote them directly, are the ones that Paul is alluding to when he makes these comments in Romans chapter 9. So go back to Isaiah chapter 29 and verse uh, 16. And, uh, uh, well, pick it up in verse 15. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in a dark place, and they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Notice that, verse 16. You turn things around. What are they turning around? Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made should say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? So what he's saying is, Israel, by their, by their obstinance and rebellion against God and their refusal to listen to God, has put themselves in a position where they're claiming to be equal with the potter. That's precisely what the guy in Romans chapter 9 is doing. Go over to chapter 45. And these are, like I said, uh, the verses that Paul appears to be alluding to. But in Psalm 45, or excuse me, Isaiah 45, and in verse 9, he says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are, uh, or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? So, so what Isaiah is saying is that Israel, by its obstinance and by its rebellion, has reversed things. And it's taken the clay and it's making the clay able to dictate to the potter what the potter does. And that's exactly the point that Paul raises there in verse 20 of Romans chapter 9, where he says, you know, how is the thing that's molded or does the thing that's molded say to the thing that's the one that's molding him, why did you make me like this? This is absurd. This is to this is to actually reverse roles. And this is precisely what the person, the, this opponent in Romans chapter nine is doing. What he's doing is he's making himself greater than God. He's basically saying, God, you are in no place to judge. I can do what I want to do. And he's basically rendering the sovereign, eternal God impotent regarding unrighteousness. He's saying, we're Israel, we're special, 
You made these promises. You cannot go back on these promises. You cannot harden us. You cannot discipline us. We can go on and live any way we want to live. This is why Paul responds so harshly in Romans chapter 9. This ludicrous idea that I can go on and sin any way I want to sin and God has nothing He can do about it because if He did something about it, He'd be unjust. And Paul says, this ain't going to fly. And so then, Paul brings up this, uh, this analogy of the potter and the clay. Uh, and there's some things we need to understand about this analogy of the potter and clay because we encounter it a number of times particularly in the Old Testament but also even in the New Testament Uh, and and you encounter it in other places in in extra biblical Jewish literature Uh, but maybe we should take some time and just go back and look at kind of the main place where this analogy is presented to us and that's in Jeremiah in uh, chapter uh, 18 of Jeremiah so if you just flip back there uh, and uh, and God's having problems with Israel, and they're not doing what he ought, they ought to do, and that sort of thing. And so God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah uh, 18, and uh, in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of the clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter has, or does? Declares the Lord, Behold, Like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I have promised to bless it. So now then, speak to the men of Judah against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It is hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. So this is really kind of a classic uh, analogy here of the potter and the clay. And I don't think necessarily that Paul specifically is alluding here to Jeremiah 18. But this, this whole idea of the potter and the clay and this analogy runs throughout Scripture in several places in Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Paul uses it in Timothy and it's used in Revelation. And it's just 
it runs through a number of different places. And so we encounter. And of course, you're familiar with the idea of the potter and the clay where you have you have the, the potter has this spinning wheel and he takes this clay and he and he first he puts it in the ground and he treads on it and he gets it the way he wants it. And then he takes this like and he takes this lump of clay and he slaps it down on the wheel and he starts that wheel spinning and then he begins to shape that piece of clay into some kind of vessel. And he has in his mind something specific he wants that vessel to be. He has some use for which he wants to put it or for which he wants to sell it for somebody else to put it to use for that purpose. And so he's forming it. But in the story here in Jeremiah, what happens as he's forming that vessel? It gets messed up somehow. It gets spoiled. He doesn't tell us how. It just gets spoiled in the potter's hand. And so what does the potter do? Does he just throw up his hands and go, well, this clay doesn't want to be what I want it to be. Is that what he does? What does he do? He remakes it into something else that he wants it to be. Okay. And then God tells Jeremiah what he means by all this. And what he means is, I can start out to make something and I'm wanting to make it, but if that nation or kingdom rebels and refuses and whatever, then I can just change. I can make it into something else. And so, so Jeremiah is to tell Israel this and Israel's response is, well, it's useless. You know, we're, we're just going to do what we're going to do. You know, this fatalistic, deterministic, you know, whatever. We're just going to do what we're going to do. And so, you know, go away, Jeremiah. Don't bother us. Right? So, this is kind of the background. And so this idea of the potter and the clay is this analogy pops up in several places in Scripture. Now, you have to be careful because there are places where Scripture uses an analogy of a clay pot, but that is not the same analogy. For example, in Psalm 2, it speaks of the Lord as the Messiah. He's going to come and He's going to shatter this clay pot. Well, that's not the same analogy. That's just an analogy of a pot being shattered. That's not the potter clay analogy. The potter clay analogy is this idea of Jeremiah 18 that the potter is shaping and that he can make it what he wants or it could be spoiled, it could be made into something different. That's the potter clay analogy. Okay, And it occurs at several points throughout, uh, as I said, throughout the Scripture. Um, Now, as I said, Paul in verse 20 appears to be alluding to Isaiah 29:16, Isaiah 45:9, the idea that the clay is saying to the potter, "Well, I'm on a level with you. You have no right. You know, you 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 can't make me what you want." Okay. So, but when he goes on, then in verse, uh, uh, excuse me, I'm in Jeremiah. I should go back to Romans. Uh, when he goes on in Romans 9 and he says uh, having a hard time finding Romans here somebody moved it I, I, you should just fall right open to it I know 
He says, uh, what, uh, he says, on the contrary, who are you, a man who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, when Paul says that uh, in verse uh, 21, he's actually quoting... Uh, he's actually quoting from a... Uh, passage in the Apocrypha, what we call the Apocrypha, those intertestamental books, you know, that that some people include in their Bibles as Protestants. We we don't uh, because we believe they're tremendously valuable historically and even have a lot of spiritual truth in them. But we don't don't believe uh, that they are inspired Scripture, and so we don't include them in what we refer to as the canon of Scripture. But we still can refer to them, and and they have tremendous value. In them. And Paul sometimes quotes from the Apocrypha, and in this case. He's alluding to a verse in the Book of Wisdom in the Apocrypha in which, in which the writer of the Book of Wisdom is criticizing the Jews for their worship of idols. And he points out that idols are just, you know, the clay ones are just made by a potter. And the potter can take, and from one lump of clay, a potter can take uh, this one lump of clay and he can make it into anything he wants it to be. So if he wants to make it a vessel for honorable use, he can. Or if he wants to make it a vessel for common use or dishonorable use, he can do that. He can do whatever he wants. And the point of the message is, you know, this this idol that you're worshiping is just comes out of the mind of the potter. He just thinks whatever he wants and he just makes what he wants to make. And 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 you deserve to trust in people like that or things like that because because of your wickedness. That's the point. Of the, of the quote from, uh, I believe it's in Wisdom 15.7, if you ever want to look it up. So, so, Paul's point then is that God is sovereignly free to shape the pot, the vessel, any way he wants to. Okay? Now, there are five things about this potter clay analogy we should keep in mind. Because what troubles me about the analogy, uh, it's not the analogy itself, it's what people do with it, is that people just read this analogy and they go, okay, God's the potter and I'm the clay, so God's sovereign and He just makes me, and I just sit here like a lump of clay and I just get, you know, and I have no, no control, I have no influence, I have the, the I have no bearing at all on what happens. I just you know. And so this analogy is used in ways that Scripture never uses the analogy. And so there are several things we need to keep in mind. I have five in particular. Five important points about the potter-clay analogy. Uh, the first I've already made is that not all the analogies regarding clay vessels are potter-clay analogies. Okay, I gave you an example, Psalm chapter 2. Okay. Uh, so, just because you see an analogy out there that talks about a clay pot, that's not necessarily a potter clay analogy. So, just keep that in mind. So, there's some passages you might go, when I make one of these other points, you might say, well, here's a verse where it doesn't apply. Well, the question is, is that a potter clay analogy? So, for example, uh, there are a few of these passages that you read them and you go, well, this is, talking about the, this is talking about a clay pot, but it doesn't seem to be talking about nations or kingdoms. Well, it's not a pot or clay analogy. Okay? So, 
Uh, keep that in mind. The second point is that a potter clay analogy, and this seems obvious, a potter clay analogy involves vessels. Okay, keep that in mind. It involves vessels. It always involves vessels, right? In Jeremiah 18 and these other places, there are these vessels that the potter is making. Okay, and and that's important to keep in mind. Because by definition, why does a vessel exist? To hold things or to do something, right? A vessel is created for a purpose. Okay? So there is implied in the potter clay analogy that's used in Scripture, there is always implied the issue of instrumentality. That this vessel has a purpose for which it is to be employed. Okay? And, and so oftentimes, when the analogy is being used, this issue of what is the reason, what is, this pur- what is the purpose for this vessel, how is this vessel going to be employed in the purposes of the one who owns it? Okay? Or in the plan of the one who owns it? So we have the potter in Jeremiah 18 and he's forming this vessel, but it gets spoiled. Something happens to it where it will no longer serve the purpose that he had in mind in forming it. So what does he do? He reshapes it into something else so that it will serve the purpose for which it is designed. Okay? So the potter clay analogy always implies in some degree this issue of instrumentality. Okay? Uh, but it also in addition to stressing the idea of instrumentality it also stresses the idea of the freedom of God that's always implied in the potter clay analogy God's free he can make this choice okay he's free to choose to make something the way he wants to make it okay the third point uh, to remember about potter clay analogies is that with only one exception, and actually I argue this really isn't an exception, but I'll explain that in a minute. With only one exception, the analogy is used in reference to kings and or nations. So, for example, uh, although it's not strictly used about Pharaoh, uh, it's used here in Romans 9 following the discussion about Pharaoh. So you could say in one sense, it's been used about Pharaoh. It's used about Cyrus. It's used about Israel. It's used about Jerusalem. Okay? So it's always used in reference to kings and or nations. Okay? Now, somebody could say, well, what about 2 Timothy 2.20? 2 Timothy 2.20, Paul says, in, in a large house, there are many kinds of vessels. There are vessels of gold and silver and wooden and earthenware. And he says, if you want to be at some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. If you want to be a vessel used for honor, he says, cleanse yourself of these things. And in that case, when Paul is speaking there, he's speaking to believers. So all the vessels he's speaking about in 2 Timothy 2 are believers. Even the dishonorable ones. Or the ones used for, dis- for dishonor. Okay? They're all believers. And they can actually choose which one they want to be. And he tells them, okay, there's all this stuff that Christians sometimes do. They gossip, they quarrel, 
They talk about speculation. They talk about worldly talk. They do all this kind of stuff with their tongue. And he goes through all kinds of things we do with our tongue. And he says, you do away with those things in your life and you'll be a vessel for honorable use. Okay. Now, somebody might say uh, that, that in that case, here's a, a case of the potter clay analogy uh, being used in reference to an individual rather than king or nation. And I, and I might allow that that is the one exception, but I would argue that's not really a potter clay analogy because he's really not talking about the potter making the vessel. He's talking about us choosing what vessel we want to be. So uh, either way, it may be one exception or it may not be such an analogy at all. Uh, the fourth point, actually it looks like I have six here. The fourth point is the analogy is never used any place in Scripture to refer to individual salvation. Never used to refer to individual salvation. This is the chief objection I have to what many people do with the potter clay analogy in Romans chapter 9 is they make it applicable to salvation, but it's never used anywhere else in Scripture in that way. It's always used in reference, as we said, to this idea of instrumentality of fulfilling God's purposes with the nations. Okay? Uh, so it's never used to refer to individual now, salvation. And even in the exception that I pointed about, the earlier exception I pointed out in Second Timothy, Paul uses it to refer to individuals. So it is referring to individuals there, but it's not referring to their salvation. It's referring to how they are used within this great house, which is the church. So it's not used in reference to salvation. It's used in reference to how someone is used, the idea of instrumentality again. We need to remember uh, that the intended teaching of the analogy is the idea of the freedom of the sovereignty of God to make his vessels as he chooses. That's the, that's the point of the analogy. Okay? And uh, it does not teach man's inability to affect the outcome. No place where the analogy is used does it teach man's inability to affect the outcome. In fact, over and over again where it is used, for example, in Jeremiah 18, God is saying... People, if you will change, this situation will change. Implied is, there is a possibility to affect the outcome. Okay? Which brings up the sixth point, uh, which is, this is an analogy, which is similar to a parable. And what I mean by that is, we can't try to make it walk on all fours. People take a parable in the Gospels and Jesus is trying to teach one point, and so he uses a parable to make one point. But people try to take this parable, which is a kind of analogy. They take this parable and they try and make it make every single aspect of the parable parallel to reality, spirituality. That does not work. You cannot do that. A parable has one point. You ask yourself, what is that one point the parable is making? And stick to that. And don't try and make a parable say a bunch of things it's not saying. Okay. Well, the same is true with an analogy. Now we've established that the point of the potter clay analogy is the freedom of God to create vessels or shape vessels or reshape vessels for certain instrumentality, for certain purposes. That's the point. 
to take it beyond that and to read other things into the analogy is to fail in our hermeneutic, is to fail in, in our principles of biblical interpretation. What is interesting to me is, as I was reading the commentators on this, how many commentators had to say over and over again, I think it's a good point, we are not pots. <laughs> You're not a pot, folks. And what they simply mean by that is, although they, and they aren't arguing with the analogy, but the point is, you are not simply this inanimate lump of dried clay that is incapable of making free choices. Okay? To extrapolate that from the analogy is to take more from the analogy than God ever does. The analogy is simply that God is free to choose and that we are the clay and we cannot argue with the choices God makes. That's the point of the analogy. And that He is shaping or making nations and peoples. Again, it's not a reference to individuals. He is making and shaping uh, nations and peoples for the purposes of accomplishing his purpose in the world. And what we're going to discover as we go forward is that that purpose is that he might show mercy to all. This is the grand purpose of God. That he might show mercy to all. And he says it in those exact words at the end of his argument in Romans chapter 11. That he might show mercy to all. That is God's purpose. And so if he hardens Pharaoh, if he hardens Israel, if he does so in order that he might show mercy to another group of people, that's God's choice. He can make that choice. It does not imply anything about salvation for, uh, for the individual. It doesn't imply anything about, about man's inability to have some influence in this. Very clearly in Jeremiah 18 and other places, man does, can affect, can have some influence on the outcome, can have some influence on God's choice, and that does not compromise the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. He can choose. And so he will do, uh, he will do as he wishes to do, and we can't argue with it. Well, uh, so what we've gotten down so far to verse uh, 22. So that's where we'll pick it up next week, where he then puts forth this question. What if God, though willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath? And so we'll discuss, we'll begin to discuss this idea of how God now makes the choices he makes. And one of the choices God makes is that even though he's ready to show his wrath in the case of certain situations, even though he's willing to show his wrath on Israel and punish Israel, he's waiting and he's holding off and he's holding off and he's holding off and he's holding off off for a reason. And that reason is mercy. And what we will discover next week is what James says in James chapter 2, mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, so that's where we're going.